This is Dave Moss, host of the Open Door Philanthropy Podcast and founder of The Unfunded List. Thank you for joining me. This week, I have Lynn O'Connell on a Google Meet, uh, and I thought I would record it. Hello, Lynn. How are you? I am great. It's good to be with you here today, Dave. Uh, very good. Where, uh, in fact, are you? you are not actually in my bedroom with me. No, I am in Alexandria, Virginia, sitting in my house, waiting for the snow to come yet again. Yes, they say it's going to snow. Um, I am up in D.C. for a little bit, and they ha- I have painters. So I have um, <laughs> sequestered here in my bedroom with my microphones, uh, and we're going to talk about philanthropy. And what I usually do is I just dive right into it. Is that all right with you? Sure, go for it. All right. Uh, what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? <laughs> First question, and I already laugh. Uh, <laughs> usually my answer to that is a question. Where do you think I'm from? That being said, since this is a podcast day. I did research you beforehand. I think I know. <laughs> I may have told you too. At any rate, I'm from Kentucky, and I'm always very pleased that I think, anyway, that I no longer have a Kentucky accent. At any rate, I grew up in, in Kentucky. Um, actually, it was a, a very poor, impoverished area of Kentucky. Um, in school, I fell in love with school at a very early age, and I knew pretty much pretty early on the goal of my life was to get out of Kentucky. By the time I got to junior high school, I ended up being the representative for Kentucky and Ohio to go to the National Spelling Bee, which was in Washington, D.C., and that was my first time out of Kentucky, staying at the Mayflower Hotel uh, for this National Spelling Bee on television. Uh, Funny experience I've never forgotten. You know, here I am at age 12. I got stuck in the elevator for over an hour with Colonel Sanders and a man for the older reviewer, uh, older listeners, John Ehrlichman. And uh, again, very funny experiences. So there I don't I think I'm in, old, but I do know John. You do Ehrlichman. know John Ehrlichman, okay? <laughs> and anyway. Colonel Sanders. Yeah, you know Colonel Sanders. <laughs> yeah, my, my, I'm my main question is: uh, did, should, I'm assuming that you did not win the spelling bee. Sadly, no. My word that I lost on was gloaming. G l o a m i n g. Gloaming. Which means the way the light looks at sunset. It's not one mm. many of us use. <laughs> it's like, I feel like that's something that comes up in like Irish poetry. Exactly, exactly. The heather, anyway, I was, the heather in the he, fields is in the gloaming. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but the trip was... Well, congratulations for winning... You beat everyone. Uh, you beat all the other kids from Kentucky. I bet th- that's true. That's true. <laughs> I bet they could. I bet they spell. That state is known for being a strong spelling state. Good spellers. <laughs> no, not really. But oh well. Um, uh, I think uh, I can't remember who won that year. At any rate, so I came back to Kentucky after a week in D.C. and I decided that working in education would be what would finally get me out of Kentucky. Hmm. Then I got out, I went away to college, and after that, I went overseas, but you're going to come to those questions in a few minutes. Yes, yeah, sure thing. But um, when you were a child in Kentucky, in the in the hollers <laughs> and whatnot, what did you like to do? Honestly, I did a lot of reading. That's how you became I... good at spelling, I assume? Did you do any, uh, did you put the book down ever? Did you go, did you play in the hollers? In the? Did you go outside a lot? 
No, I'm still a couch potato to this day, sadly. Not much outside, um, you know, walking to and from school. But no, I was. I did a lot of theater, though. I did, I did I see. do a great deal of theater. From an early age. Yeah, I started out acting. Uh, I was doing local non-school theater by the time I was about 11. I think my first play I ever appeared in was George Washington Slept Here. I see. I was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Ah. I was I was Charlie, of course. The uh, and um, uh, actually before that, I was I believe I was some sort of bee. I got dressed up like a bee in first grade. <laughs> yeah, I think for and first buzzed, grade, I was made the a lot littlest of buzzing Christmas sounds. tree. I was the littlest Christmas tree because I was really short. But it was a primo. It was a very good role, little Christmas tree there. <laughs> so. Yes, and now I'm remembering now that, that um, when you first came to us to evaluate that you already knew Margaret. Exactly. Through, through theater. From theater. So something that you've stayed involved with. Margaret and I, who run the Unfunded List, both have theater backgrounds. And it's actually been very helpful. Theater is very interesting to me in that, you know, you can work with any, even an amateur, not just professionals, anyone who's a theater practitioner from anywhere in the world. And generally, we all know what the process is. We understand how rehearsal works and we have a shared vocabulary and shared experience. It's not necessarily true of all professions. Like sometimes they work differently and all that. And in fact, like you wouldn't necessarily be able to jump into any fundraising office and instantly know the process <laughs> true 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 uh, yes, theater is is a great equalizer so margaret and i talk about notes right and rehearsals right and <laughs> and, uh, uh, and those sorts of things often and it's been it's been helpful to have that shared experience um so uh staying with uh little lynn um in kentucky not so much frolicking in the fields but perhaps heading down to the community theater, enjoying school, these sorts of things. Uh, where um, One of the questions we like to ask everyone who comes onto the podcast is, uh, do they remember the first time that they were generous uh, or that they gave a gift? Um, I do, and great. it's funny. It was a complete disaster. Uh, now I you say, failed? you know, many decades later. I mean, it was fine at the time. I didn't realize it was a disaster. So even though I was very poor and all of our classmates were poor, in my second grade class, there was a little boy. His initials were DL. And he was poorer than all of us. Like, he didn't ever get to eat lunch. Um, so I decided one Christmas that I was going to give him a box with a whole bunch of Christmas gifts in it. And I had the blessing of my parents and I had the blessing of the, my, my teacher and the school's principal. So this was, and so I, I did this phenomenal box filled with all these wrapped gifts and anonymously, I had the teacher put it, um, by his, by his desk just before we were to go home for Christmas break. And he did take it home and I have no idea what happened after that, but I thought afterwards, what a way to sort of show someone out as being poor and needy. So I really regret that now, years later. Um, but it was it was a first. At least well, I you did I do it. Did something. Uh, well, one, you were a. I think it would have been the, the the adults that you ran this plan by on them to figure that out, and it could have been done in a way that didn't call you. You did it anonymously, and yeah. right. And he didn't seem 
upset by it. But in retrospect, as I look back, I cringe a bit now. So it may have been fine. I'll never know. Um, sadly, and this has always been interesting to me, after we all graduated from high school, he was the first individual in my class who died. He went oh. off. Uh, he joined the Army, and he was killed uh, just about a year and a half after we graduated. So that's always stuck with me, too, sort of the haves and have-nots, if you will, perhaps. Um. Yes. Now, I would say, as a, as someone who sometimes criticizes philanthropy, that that was ineffective. You weren't addressing the root causes, right? We don't know. I don't know everything about his background, but there's many, many institutional and systemic systemic reasons that cause poverty in Appala all throughout Appalachia. Um, and in fact, some of those. We don't need to talk about how many decades ago that was, but many of those issues still, we've not, we knew about them then. We're not necessarily addressing them even still. Addressing the systemic inequality that caused little DL to be poor would have been very difficult. But it is a nice feel-good story for all the adults, right? That, right, and I can see this being the sort of thing that they would put on Good Morning America, that a little girl got a bunch of gifts, right, for, for the poor kid. Right. And in fact, it is somewhat of a tragedy um, that <laughs> you even like you had the it's very I, I like that one. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. You it's had the, you had the empathy to that. recognize it. Uh, and it's not something that he should have to feel bad about. Not his fault. Little deal. I'm sure he hadn't made poor financial decisions. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, right. and I, again, I'm not farm. sure how he felt about it at the time, but decades later, I still cringe a bit. But <laughs> uh, yes, um, well, um, so uh, as far as I can tell, uh, like I said, I do some research on my guests, and we've known you a little while. Reviewing, uh, as far as I can tell, you are a Christian. Were you? Uh, did you? You went to church there in Kentucky growing up. Well, first I say, good, I'm doing something right. You could read about me and discover I was a Christian, so that's good. Uh, I did. I went to church all through my childhood in a local church and have continued my entire life. I've always tended toward non-denominational, fairly conservative churches. Uh, that's just my, has been my preference. Two of my big beliefs, and I think a lot of things about religion, Dave, we could have done a whole podcast on faith. Yes. Uh, at any rate, my two things I think about religion are, uh, first of all, that we all need to be out there interacting with the world, you know, Church is not in a building. It's being out with people. It's interacting with everyone who's there. And secondly, I think it's a key part of being a Christian is helping those in need. Physical needs, poverty, all of those things. And I think a lot of us who are Christians, you know, we could do more of this. I, I have been attending a church called National Community Church out of D.C., and we have an emergency needs fund. We have a resource database that where people could put in, I need a coat for my 10-year-old. I need a car to get to work. And then other people put what they have to give away. This weekend, we're launching the Dream Collective, which is going to give funds to people who are launching their own businesses or nonprofits. Hmm. So I believe philanthropy is a very key part of faith. And, and faith can be a key part of philanthropy. Well, for the vast majority of the history of philanthropy, uh, it was. It's exclusively been the providence of faith. It, it's been churches and temples and organized religion that have conducted it, and they continue to conduct it to this day. 
And most of your major, even your like secular philanthropists, uh, like Rockefeller, for instance, uh, hired a nun to run his foundation. Um, and a lot of the language is the same. And uh, certainly you're right. Uh, it's a it's a fundamental part. Uh, and, um, you know, a point I do like to make is that they do continue to a lot of entrepreneurs who aren't running a like religious institution and who may not um, be particularly religious themselves or at least not attending services very regularly that, as you may know, but church and temple attendance have been going down. <laughs> the, exactly. And a lot of social entrepreneurs tend to ignore this sort of thing. I once I I ask a lot of them like what's the role of faith with this right they uh, they'll be talking about things like the future of work for instance a lot of the proposals we read on the future of work I will ask them I'm like well what do you know about you know the Protestant Reformation <laughs> and they're they're like well, I don't you know nothing or I'm like how could you possibly be working on the future of work if you don't know anything about the Protestant Reformation and they're they're confused that I asking that question. Which isn't a great sign. Others know a lot about it. We'll talk to me. That's when I am. I get a little bit more excited about the more holistic um, solutions. Uh, but we are, I think, in fundamentally, we're a generation that sort of um, lost trust in a lot of the religious institutions, and those of us who want to solve problems aren't looking there as much as it might have in the past. And that happened at the same time that a lot of organized philanthropists started giving, and not necessarily through a religious lens. However, we know we do know from the data that most giving, a very large amount of giving, goes to faith-based organizations or directly to churches. It, it, I, the last time I, I, it's been a little while since I looked at the numbers, but a, a very large amount. And you have, in fact, a fund at your church. You mentioned we have several funds. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more. Yeah, tell me a little. Uh, so uh, you, there's some sort of emergency. So something for COVID response. Emergency. And it wouldn't have to be COVID. In today's world, it is COVID almost always. You know, people. Yeah, I wanted to ask, jobs. what were you doing before the pandemic? There was emergency needs for people still lost their jobs before COVID, or people still had. Yeah, I lost many. I lost many. Spouse, you know, I have kind of a big mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. So for uh, uh, and in, there's support for entrepreneurs. That we're just launching. So I haven't seen the full display. It'll come out tomorrow, actually. So local, display, local but it's for area. entrepreneurs of businesses as well as nonprofits. And they have to be from Alexandria? No, anywhere in the country. Primarily, though, the Metro D.C. area. Okay, there's a lot of folks starting businesses and nonprofits in the area. The, um, and they should uh, keep looking on that. They, anyway, Absolutely. That's, uh, that's, very, that's very cool. Uh, so, uh, your, and you, you, so you were sort of talking about two things when it comes to what, you know, why church is important to you. The first one, I think I would call fellowship, right? You got to go out there and you have to see, it's not just, it, that's my building, right? Or I follow these rules. <laughs> yeah. It, right? It's about being out in the community and being a part of the community. And the second is supporting those people in need. Uh, terrific. Uh, my, uh, the main thing that gave it away, you were a Christian, is I noticed you went some, to somewhere called David Lipscomb Aha, uh-huh. okay, yes. David Lipscomb University in Nashville is I had a, not heard uh, of it, and I looked it up, and it was formerly Nashville Bible College. 
It was, but that was way back in the 1800s. Sure. <laughs> I think, in fact, so I went to Dickinson College, and I do believe its first name was like Carlisle Bible College or something like that. I in didn't 17- know that name. Interesting. And in fact, Colby College, where I grew up, was originally like Colby Theological Institute. Or no, Waterville Theological Institute, <laughs> which is not a good name. Colby College good strong um but um the the just like with philanthropy um for a very long time in human history the church ran everything including education it's not that um surprising uh, but it did seem like it was a particularly particularly christian college that, that oh, only a christian yeah. would choose to go to yeah, pretty much, except for some of our sports players who were recruited in because they were great at sports. Overall, it was a very religious school. We had to go to chapel every day. Every day? Uh, Monday through Friday. Right. That's a lot of chapel. <laughs> okay. Hey, but you signed up for this. You could have gone. Many schools do not make you do that. I, I am very glad I went there. It was a great uh, place to first sort of try my wings outside of Kentucky and I met great people that I'm still friends with. Uh, it gave me a lot of perspectives on religion, what to believe, what to not to believe. Just a very good exposure. Great way to start my, my adult life. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and you have, you went on to, to receive a formal education in philanthropy. I did. Uh, for a long time, there was, there was one program in the country where you could get a degree in philanthropy and you went and uh, am I correct that, that when you went there, this was the only, if you, for someone, who I, wanted was, a- I was in their second cohort of classes that they were just beginning. And that was Indiana university, Purdue university in Indianapolis. Ooey pooey by those of us go there or went there. Ooey pooey. So before we were, before the show, you told me that that's what people called it. And I figured that you were trying to trick me. <laughs> no, I was not. But you said if you, you said it first. <laughs> uh, Pui, Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. Which there, definitely has to be shortened because it takes forever to say that. So Pui works. And, and where, it's in, is it in Indianapolis? <laughs> it is in Indianapolis. And it's really the campuses combined of Indiana University and Purdue University. We have one combined campus there. So what kind of classes do you take when you're getting a degree in philanthropy? So there's... And we already mentioned this sort of. There's the history of philanthropy. So we started back at 10,000 BC and came all the way up through the the, the centuries. And mm-hmm. then we also touched on all the cultural differences of philanthropy. You know, what it's like in East Polynesia, what it's like in East Asia, what it's like amongst different religions, what it's like in the Middle East and coming up through history. So that was fascinating. A lot about ethics, of course. And a lot of reading of some of the uh, early great masters. One of my favorite books from that was actually a book called The Arrogant Beggar, which was written in 1927, which is just as relevant today and talks about really what philanthropists should and shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. There were legal courses, legal lawsuits involving nonprofits and what the outcomes were, uh, a lot of background in finance and how to do accounting for nonprofits. The best part, like any master's program, I would argue, was really the connections and the networking. Being in that second cohort at Uipui, uh, we had the mayor of Portland, Maine in my class. Oh, there really? was someone who ran a foundation in Turkey in my class. Uh, and so you had a very diverse Diverse group of students. Uh, yeah, very cool. 
And then, uh, over the years, largely uh, due to Doris Buffett, um, who gave the grants possible to, to many schools, as I the last I heard is nearly 100 places you could get a degree in philanthropy. Uh, but when you were there, uh, right, you said not only was it the only one, but you were, this was the second time, right? So you're one of the very first people ever in a formal educational philanthropy. Exactly. And that does kind of highlight one of our working theories here that, and something that we do talk to our proposal authors a lot about is that philanthropy is a very new field. Or then, and when I say philanthropy, right, you were mentioning 10,000 BC. When I say philanthropy and what we're, when we're educating people, the mission of Unfunded List is to educate the public about philanthropy. And what we're educating people about is not very similar to what they were doing in 10,000. I think you're probably sort of looking at anthropology there and how, right, the, a big part of humanity is that we did work together, um, right, and uh, uh, and in order to thrive, right? What um, We have some resources available on the history of philanthropy uh, in our, uh, on our website for folks that really want to take a deep dive. If they want to avoid reading some of the textbooks about history of philanthropy, which is largely just the history of administrative law and administrative tax law, right? So the major events are like, because, you know, rich people in America raised, made more money for themselves than really anybody ever had. And there was like a large number of people who had obscene amounts of money, more money than they could possibly like spend. And, and many of them wrote about this. There's a great um, essay by Carnegie. I think it's just called On Wealth. And there's a line in it, I forget, I used to be able to quote it, but I, I, I can't recall it exactly. But it's really kind of, he's like, I no one on earth, like, it is really crazy how much I have. Right? It's basically the gist of what he's saying. Um, right. And uh, he went about the, the, the task, the organized task of giving it all away. And very quickly learned that it's work. He I had to hire professionals full-time who did it and there's a lot of very interesting if you read if you, if you do want to read a history of philanthropy textbook there's one by oliver zunes i think it's just called history of philanthropy okay, right and in particular it's got some good quotes in the beginning from folks that were just sort of they want to give their money away but they're bothered by the people who are asking it's like um the the, the they, they uh, and, and in general there's just too many of them we tell a story often on the podcast and elsewhere about olivia slocum sage there is still the Russell Sage Foundation in existence, and it's very organized and specific in its funding. But originally, the widow Sage, after her husband died, was not that specific. She just published a letter in the New York Times. I'm very rich widow. I have more money than I need. Please just send me a letter. Tell me what you want, and I'll give you the money. More or less, that's what she wrote. No one had ever done anything like that before. She had no idea that it would be way too many people, right? It's kind of similar. It's a similar naivete to you in class with DL, right? I think one of the things that you didn't understand then is that, like, there were probably other kids in your class <laughs> who were needy. <laughs> he was probably not. He, he might have been the most obvious, but you weren't looking at their tax. You didn't do the means testing. Right? <laughs> you don't know that he was the poorest, <laughs> right? You didn't make everyone in your class write a grant proposal. So you could probably assess like the impact and we of your. Couldn't write yet, Dave. <laughs> I remember it was second yeah. grade. <laughs> I I, wrote, I was writing pretty well. In second grade. Well, I don't think I don't we could do you. grant proposals in second I wasn't, grade. Yeah. <laughs> well, why not? This is why Kentucky is falling behind. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot. I'm at the age where a lot of my 
friends have have children and they try to give me updates about them and my question is always the same is just let me know when they can review grant proposals of course i look forward to assigning grant but what are their interests what issue areas <laughs> and topics would your child like to read and eventually one of them will be like yeah i think he might be old enough or she probably she <laughs> most of our evaluators are women about 70 percent the uh, but who knows for the future generation perhaps the men of the future will be will be more willing to volunteer like you do to read grant proposals with us and thanks again for that um so what what are your thoughts on the expansion of the study of philanthropy right the the since the sages we've seen a lot of expansion in the like professionals who do it there are she eventually she did not read all the letters that she received she set up a foundation and she because she got too many it would not have been possible she would have she died before anyone would have possibly been able to read them uh but she set up a foundation and they got to work and, and that's what rockefeller and carnegie and all them uh and can and, and continuously what they'll do is right hire like hire philanthropy advisors which is one of the fastest growing fields for new businesses uh in the country right and also but um in education right expanding quick as well what are your thoughts on Right on. Right, it would be. It's an interesting experience having gone to the only one of these programs, and now there are now there's many. I I think maybe the field has become too full. I, I as someone who teaches in a lot of programs, I guess I can get away with saying this. I think that somehow the education sector has become more of a business itself. So how do we get more people enrolled in things? I think for those people interested in philanthropy and nonprofits, the two best things to one can be just jump in and do it and the other is it almost goes back to the faith question too get out there engage with people talk with people for me i found the class experience phenomenal because i was early enough that i had some really great members in my cohort and secondly i knew i wanted to teach and i needed that advanced degree to teach. But I think for the average person, particularly at the cost of higher education today and the loans and the debts at this point, you know, I recommend just getting out there and doing it, but maybe taking some classes or finding a mentor along the way. Uh, and in fact, if you want to get experience in reading grant proposals, you could volunteer. Come to the unfunded the... list. <laughs> and I will give you all the grant proposals you want. You can, we have our own trainings and everything. Lots of and I do say in the many grant writing classes I teach, I do always say the best way to learn to write grants is to be a reviewer. Yes. And actually, in fact, sometimes they listen to you and then they come and they sign up to be an evaluator and they write and we ask them, like, how did you find out about us? And they say, Lynn, o Lynn O'Connell. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I, uh... Hopefully they were good reviewers and got the reviews in on time. <laughs> Most for the most part, <laughs> it is uh, we one of the, it's difficult to man. We have hundreds of volunteers yeah. here, and anyone who's got a program like this and involved in, that involves volunteer reviewers, it is difficult, right? And I certainly don't have the money to like pay a bunch of people to review all these proposals. And I think that would fundamentally change, right, the feedback that we have. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that is important to me, and I want to ask your opinion about it in a second here. Uh, so we aren't. This is right. It's not. I am a nonprofit. Unfunded List is a non not for profit. It's not a company. We're not development consultants. My goal is not to raise as much money as I can for every proposal that comes here. If you if you want if you're sending a proposal because you want me to raise more money for you, that's like not exactly the right reason you should say. That often happens, right? We are going to give you feedback on your proposal. If your proposal might be bad, 
might be unfundable. Might be you might need to focus on a different kind of revenue, or you might like have a kind of flawed. You might be doing a like flawed approach, something that like funders are kind of hip to and no longer funding. Right? There's all kinds of things that can happen through the feedback process. Everybody running a nonprofit, running grant proposals, needs to have it read by an unbiased committee to get the, or else they won't really know the full impact of their work. When we work with academic programs, which we do sometimes, right? There's all kinds, all kinds of different schools. Some of them have been very clear to me that the goal of working with us is that they want their alumni to start nonprofits that raise large amounts of money. More like it, that's they're very they've been very clear that the metric is more dollars raised. And I'm like, well, there's much if they're starting nonprofits, right? Like you can't like that's that's a weird thing to be your only like it's nonprofits right there in the name of what it is, right? The I we can talk about like I could help you find. Have your alumni start the nonprofits that are going to have the most impact, be the most likely to be successful. In many programs, that's what they want to do, right? The we you've read some proposals from MIT through their solve program, right? They want to solve these issues, right? They also need to fund that program, and so sometimes they have right they 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 fund in areas that are in overlap with their donors' interests. And if a new donor were to come in with new interests, they might start a new challenge. And in fact, they designed themselves to be that way. There's more than enough challenges, right? <laughs> Same thing with here. On funding list doesn't have a specific type of thing. Whatever proposal you've written, you, we know that you need feedback, right? Uh, so uh, uh, some of these programs, some of these um, new philanthropy programs undoubtedly were set up because they want Nonprofits with greater impact and others because they want their alumni to raise a lot more money. Right? Is that a problem? Um, is that a deal? Is I that think the deal? it's probably true. I would agree with you that the mission and the and the board's push should not be for the most money. It should be for the greatest impact on society. And that does not always exactly equate to the more money, the more impact. Not necessarily. Yeah, there you know, are. It may not be addressing systemic change, perhaps, perhaps if you do want it to, or it may be that it's the sort of project. Maybe you're working with severely disabled adults, and you're doing twenty four seven care. That's going to cost a lot. Some people might argue that it has more limited impact because it's not feeding five million. Yes, and there's many different. Schools of thought on that, right? There was the famous, uh, still operating open philanthropy project. Uh, I interviewed one of their program officers on with the same microphone one time. Uh, and there's very much an algorithmic approach. They want each dollar to save the most lives, right? But someone, you would, ne probably that algorithm is probably never going to end up funding art or the opera, right? And uh, you know there there are there is there are a lot of qualitative folks for the vast majority of time that religious institutions were doing funding they were doing it in line with their values and not to like not for, not in any kind of connection to capitalism. Uh, a working theory we have here on funded list is that philanthropy is fundamentally separate from capitalism, right? That in order to be engaged in philanthropy, you're giving excess money away. And you get to do things that are free of the wheel of capitalism. If you run a for-profit business, you're act, you have you have a bottom line, and you have to right, and you and you and you have to obey it. And you have investors, 
your obligation to them exceeds your obligation to have impact on the world. And I have seen it many, many, many times that so-called social businesses, right? They, they'll promise that a certain percentage is going here or that we're doing this or whatever, right up until the investors need their check. That's the first thing that will get cut afterwards. They have to. It's always very clear in the fine print that that's how that's, that's how it's working, mm-hmm. right? And anyone in an MBA program will learn that, right? You'll sell more of the product if you can have some sort of social mission attached to it. So then, they're all really so very difficult to right. When someone's starting a nonprofit, right, and file their tax statement differently, you can sort of like, well, okay, they're they're probably not in it for the money because they've they you know because of the formation. Right. And that's that's the general idea. And it allows them to do things that capitalism would not and has not funded. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on things that uh, should be funded with excess money? And what are, what are things that should be funded with tax dollars or that religious institutions should be funded? Do you have thoughts on that kind of segmentation? I think that in today's world, we need to rely on community-based organizations, whatever they may be. And that could be nonprofits. That could be local government agency. That could be faith-based community, or that could be some sort of for-profit business or social organization community there. Really, it's... So much of what we have as far as the systems today came about from the IRS originally and tax code and things. And at the end of the day, to really help communities, I think it's got to be the networks of people and figuring it out. I don't know if that answers exactly the question you're asking, but. So we'll talk. So a another new field in academia, similar to philanthropy, is actually the field of computer science. Um, a hundred years ago, there was no computer science departments in the country. And today I think it would be, I think I'm pretty sure even David Lipscomb university has computer science department. They had it when I went there, Dave. <laughs> the, I mean, it would be, it's a, it's a, it, but at one point they had, there were none of them. That's my point. And now pretty much every school has, that has a computer science department In many schools. That's the main department that they have. Uh, right. The primary funder, um, for computer science departments to create them was IBM. The IBM, uh, in fact, this is why IBM set up the IBM Foundation, was to give large grants to educational institutions and, and to stay within the tax code of what is technically philanthropy. And they and, and this is genius of them, really. And they got to do it in a way that trained their workforce. Because it was just a perfect fit to all the schools, right? It was like, I will give you the money you need to build this department, buy these fancy computers, right? Which will attract the best and brightest students interested in learning about them, right? And then I'm going to hire your graduates too, right? And what they end up getting, they got much more affordable job training program for themselves. And Absolutely. These- and we, we, still, we still see that today. Microsoft, for example, or Avid, all of the, the businesses that use those, typically it do invest in or give charitably to uh, nonprofit programs that teach those things, whether it's schools or other nonprofits. Well, I think there's a, you've got an, a, what I would use, what I, I think is a, a great example of, of uh, the difference between funding within the wheel of capitalism and funding outside of it, right? 
is like when you're IBM and you're doing that, like yes, you've you have technically followed the rules of philanthropy, right? But you are inside the it's it's your goals are the same. You need tech workers to in order to run your company, right? And anytime a tech company is funding a computer science department, right, or a tech accelerator program or a prize for solutions or whatever, it is in some way connected to their bottom line. And and they and that means that the decisions they make, right, are capitalistic decisions. They're not values-based decisions. This isn't I'm probably sound critical. <laughs> right. This is just a way of it is just it's it's I'm 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 fairly neutral about this type of funding. It's the vast majority of funding that happens. It flows through capitalistic institutions who want to continue to exist. And in order to do that, they have to bring in more money than they spend each year. Right. Which is also true for unfunded lists. We have to bring in more money than we spend each year. Right. Uh, but we do not have we can in fact cannot reward our investors. So I have to convince people to just donate money to us uh, so that because there really is not any capitalistic version of unfunded list, right? I would start being like, well, I need to raise more money for these, <laughs> right? And I'm a very good fundraiser. I can raise money for programs that are less than perfect. Uh, but there are anyone who's been doing philanthropy for a while will know that the best programs don't necessarily get the grants. Of course not. It's who you it's who you know and it's timing and who you ask. Right. And it's a difficult process to identify the best grantees. And I I don't think I because it's a new field that we haven't really been doing it long. We don't really definition of best. Best is going to differ between each funding source, what they would consider the best grantee. So I think a lot of people who are fundraising get frustrated at some point by organized philanthropy. And it's very interesting. I myself <laughs> frustrated by it, and they'll like in a disorder or confused, right? I think one thing for them to keep in mind is that like we don't necessarily know the best way to give grants. It's still a very new field, uh, and we are doing our mostly doing our best. Would you agree? Yeah, I still agree that though diverse giving, diverse grant making is okay. It's a match, just like dating would be. Someone might marry this person. Someone else would have nothing to do with them and marry this person. It's the same with funding sources. It's matching funding sources to the programs and to the entities that need the grants. Yes. But I think you come, I think one of the problems with all of those computer science departments, for instance, being created by people who want to hire the folks that learned it, right, mean that it doesn't necessarily mean that thought leaders created the curriculum to best serve all of humanity. Absolutely not. You know, and maybe there is a, and I have not studied it in a while, actually, when I was at Computer Core, I did look at it more closely, but which tech companies are funding which programs where, and there may be some that are a bit of monopoly, but then still you've got some diversity there. And the other thing that's a blessing is hopefully it's getting the folks out of college, into jobs, into career paths. Yeah, good jobs are great, nice but you also want tech companies to be making ethical decisions. And you've had some like notable examples of famous college dropouts making True. making unethical decisions. And I think it's worth noting that they dropped out of Harvard before they took their ethics requirements. I've named them before. 
I think most people probably know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, and there's I, more I than one. Aware, I'm not even. This isn't. This yeah, I, yeah, I am aware. <laughs> I'm thinking the most recent one at the moment, but but yeah. And, they, and these men continue to be involved, have an outsized role in philanthropy, right? And some of that is still connected to the bottom line of the companies that they work with, right? They're still somewhat trapped in the wheel, and I'd love to see them freed from the wheel of capitalism. I really would, Lynn. <laughs> it's fun out here. You get to do a lot. I, I find that you get to do a lot more interesting stuff and you get to be a lot more genuinely helpful to people without expecting them to give much back to you. The unfunded you know, proposal writers who come to us for help are not really in a position to help us much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one thing too, if I had to place blame, I might look at the schools who are taking the money more, a bit more closely too. You know, it's they, not, they, it's some of them are street. taking grants. They don't necessarily need, didn't necessarily need. Right. And lots, and I think sometimes donors are making requests that they really should that aren't that aren't appropriate. And the fact that these large, well-known institutions are acquiescing to those requests is now setting a standard that those that those that they are appropriate, yeah. right? I mean, if if Harvard does it, um, true, true. So a a, a, a great program uh, that does it that I believe someone probably fundraised for <laughs> is the Fulbright program. You were a Fulbright scholar, not the first, I was. Uh, not the first on the program, and hopefully not the last. <laughs> we've had some people, we've had some program officers who work there evaluate with us. They were very good evaluators. And I believe my I mom read proposals for it or something. It's named after U.S. Senator, correct, think, from Arkansas, William William Fulbright, Arkansas. Uh, my boss, one of my old bosses in D.C., Marsha Scott, was a like intern in Fulbright's office and was there when it got created. Um, what was it? What did you, what does that mean? Anyway, you were a Fulbright scholar. What did that mean? What did you do? So as a Fulbright scholar, um, my project, I went over to France in Normandy, a very small town called Elbeuf. About, uh, sorry, what was it called? Elbeuf. Elbeuf. Like beef, like the cow. Oh. Uh, E-L-B-E-U-F. My French accent is horrible. It never was very is good. It it's gotten le, worse. Le Beuf or... No, Elbeuf. Elbeuf. <laughs> so it's kind of a Spanish-French town. Yes, uh, near Rouen. At any rate, so I was actually um, teaching and working on projects about American business and American computers. Okay. And IBM. So IBM. It was fascinating. Most of, yeah, what, was, it, most of what you need to know. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very. It was. It was a very small town, and. Um, Actually, it ended up being bombed by the Americans during World War II. So there was not a positive American influence there, really. So it was fascinating to talk to people and to learn the different um, attitudes they had. It was also a very depressed community. A uh, huge number of immigrants from uh, North Africa were there. Yes, I think I've heard that. As you know, my uh, Jane Moss is a yes. French professor, and in particular focus on the diaspora, other Francophone people who don't live in France. Um, very cool. And it was difficult to, to become a Fulbright scholar? Did you apply? It, it was sort of funny. Um, going to David Lipscomb University, it was all sort of serendipitous, I think. So I went to David Lipscomb University, and of course, I had to work. I worked full-time my It's basically time a Fulbright feeder program, right? David Lipscomb No, not at all. Not at all, of course. <laughs> so, so, um... I worked full time, and one of my several jobs was I was the secretary for the department, the language language department chairman, and she was the French teacher. 
Dr. Sarah Witten. And so I was her secretary and I did other jobs too. And she was getting ready to retire. Um, and she'd never had a Fulbright scholar before in all her 40 some years of teaching. And so she said, Lynn, please, please, please apply. And so I applied and miracle of miracles, I got selected. Um, I think it was on the interview. I don't think it could have been on extreme intelligence, but I hope I charmed them during the interview or something. At any rate, I was selected. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I was my first experience overseas. You know, D.C. was my first experience domestically, and then France was my first experience out of the country as a Fulbright. Um, very cool. Thank you, Senator Fulbright. Exactly. <laughs> I assume he's passed. He, quite a while ago, but the program is still going strong. Thank heavens, yes. knock on wood. And it's, is this and a State Department program? It is. So you're a State Department alum? Yeah, it's so it's it's and there's many different aspects to it if you actually study it. I'm actually in the Fulbright Specialist Program now, but I don't have much time. The Fulbright Specialist Program, you can actually go overseas and do short projects for like uh, three. There's to four a lot months. of really I I meet a lot of State Department alumni. I used to work at Atlas Core, and all the fellows from there are State yes. Department alumni. Um, and um, some a lot of our evaluators have been through Peace Corps or whatever, right? Anybody who does any of these things is State. You, if you go on any sort of exchange program, you're an alumni from the State Department. They have a lot of really cool resources available, particularly uh, in, on fundraising. Did you know that you can get free foundation directory access as a State I Department alumni? I did not alumni? know that. Yeah, I usually tell most of uh, you. You would be if you if you did, you would have been the first State Department alumni who I asked that who did know. Yeah, I did not know at all. Yeah, uh, there's all kinds of really interesting. You you can basically get a free account and all the like cool resources there because those companies obviously want right. State Department alumni means you went. They already you're vetted. Um, Exactly. These are very difficult programs to get through. Uh, All those ones I named are very take only a very small percentage. Uh, So anyway, uh, go check that out. Right. Okay, I learned something new. Thank you, Dave. And then when you're evaluating (laughs) proposals with us, you can go and you can look. You can look stuff up for them since you'll have the access. I already have access, access to it <laughs> through something good. else, but I'm glad I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they, um, you got to keep up with your research exactly. on those things because philanthropists are changing their programs constantly, right? Yes. And the deadlines and there's many, 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 many organized givers, right? Um, very cool. So you are uh, a teacher. You, you, you mentioned that you uh, love school. And you got a master's degree in philanthropy so that you could become a teacher of it. Right. And you've um, taught as an adjunct with Catholic University, different kind of I Christians. Have. Yes. And, and George and Washington George University, Washington. who was, I think, George Washington. what was George Washington? He was like Church of England or something. Probably. Uh, who? who? I'm just, George Washington himself. Oh, I'm trying George to think Washington about. was Church of England, Anglican. Yeah, ang- yeah. Today, what we might call Episcopalian, but. Um, and I think... People of all faiths go to George Washington University. <laughs> probably and many, many faiths I've not even heard of, probably. Too. A lot of students so. just down the street. We've done some events there. Yeah, you've come to our events there. I um, did. And you've launched three certificate in nonprofit management and leadership programs. Uh, as I mentioned, these are these programs are becoming more and more, cop- more, and more popular. And you've launched three of them. Um, tell me about that. What I do you... What do you teach in these programs? Um, what are these stu- What kind of students do you get? Are they all just trying to raise more money, or do they want to have? Or do they want to run impactful programs? Are they, are they trying to free the free themselves from the wheel? 
It, it varies greatly. I mean, originally I started teaching, oh, about 25, 30 years ago. And I would have people take grant writing and or how to start a nonprofit and nothing else. And I was like, you need a lot more. You can't write a grant unless you know about strategic planning, unless you know about budgeting, unless you know about project development, many more things to know. So I thought that if I would start certificate programs, then I could get the students to get a more rounded knowledge and also develop cohorts so they would know other people so that they could recruit each other for jobs, recruit each other for their boards, and have people to share successes, challenges, grant opportunities with. So that was sort of my concept in starting them. The first one I started was in Colorado, and it's uh, still very large, and I go out quarterly in non-COVID times. Currently, I'm teaching online there. This was through, uh, then I also, through a school? Sorry, Colorado Free University. Does it cost and money then, to go there? No, you still have to pay. Uh, and then in the D.C. area and Northern Very Virginia misleading. Community, Northern Virginia Community College, and then through Fairfax County. So Very the cool. the students who come, it could be anybody. It could be somebody who wants to start a nonprofit, somebody who started one, someone who's following a founder. I get a lot of people who are looking for that transition what the next thing is, leaving the military or something else. I get individuals who've just somehow ended up on a board of directors and they wonder what they're supposed hmm. to be doing. So full range, which is what Good I love them. about it. And it's been exciting over the years to see, I try to keep up with most of them to see, you know, their organizations go national or they finally got that major grant from Kellogg or whatever. So that's been quite good to see. Uh, yes. Sometimes that happens here. Sometimes the people we review, they, they get grants and sometimes they tell me about it. Usually I like just read, I see them on a list. <laughs> And I say, oh, I, I, told, I read their last failed grant proposal. It looks like they're winning them now. And they don't need Dave anymore. Um, do you find that's... I started my career as a teacher. And that was one of the things that uh, I did find difficult. I think every teacher has to deal with. They don't necessarily learn the lesson like right there in front of your eyes. I can, From my own personal experience, I know sometimes it was like 10 yeah. years after I was like, oh yeah, Mr. McCarthy was right about that. Right? And I didn't yeah, necessarily I, I, call him to thank him or anything. right? So he doesn't get to see, see the rewards. I, I see it as being a toolkit. You know, I get a bunch of students. I will have, sometimes I Google them if I have time in advance, but I may not know their backgrounds. You could have some who had no idea what a nonprofit is. Others, sometimes I get EDs, <laughs> executive directors who've been in their role for 30 years. So it's a wide spectrum. So I approach it give tools and toolkits and be like an improv performer, be ready to switch mm -hmm. to address the needs that you find of the group. I sort mean, of like acting. I, I would, um, we had, uh, I did an interview with, uh, Netta Zodi, uh, last season, which was, uh, I, I interviewed only women season. She, uh, and what the main thing we talked about there is that we both consider ourselves nonprofit professionals, right? And it's a weird thing to be. Not everybody necessarily like understands it as a profession, right? It's not like being, it's like I'm a doctor, right? Or I'm a soldier, right? Everybody understands it. Like, yes, that's a real job. I'm a policeman, right? It's a real job. And I have a general understanding of what that is, right? Nonprofit professional, I think, I mean, in DC, people know what that means because <laughs> it's, because it's all of us, right? But, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, am I correct? That's a, like, that's a career path. It's a skill Absolutely. set. 
and people must know certain things. I, in fact, could be, I could go into many different roles at a nonprofit, not necessarily just the fundraising ones, because I'm a nonprofit professional. Just like, and I'm just like a mechanic who go to an auto shop and say, I can work, I can probably work there because I know how to do these things that are, that show up in an auto buy. I can do oil changes and stuff like that. I know how to do, I can write a newsletter. I can learn what the organization is doing and write a newsletter for them. Right. And I know how the appropriate tech works to send it out and, and all those things because I have those skills. So um, these are practical programs you're setting up. That, like, exactly. I, I base it really a lot on what are, what do the people need to know right now and what what can start their stepping stones and what resources can I introduce them to so they'll know what to do next. And, you know, loved or not, one of the things I stress is. Maybe you should think several minutes before you start a nonprofit. Uh-huh. You know, in, in, in 2018, more people started nonprofits in America than small businesses. Now, I don't have the current statistics, but, you know, again, look around. Don't necessarily think you have to recreate. We have our uh, one of our most read articles on the website is the uh, five tips for writing grant proposals. And our first tip is consider not doing it. <laughs> right. Uh, and it's just, and it's often we, it often after I read someone's proposal through our program, like that's, I'm generally saying to them, like, this is not some, like, it's not that they have a bad idea. And in fact, they never do. No one ever comes to us with a, with a fundamentally bad idea. They're not, they're fundamentally not grant ready some of the times, right? This isn't something a foundation would give a grant to. And here's the very specific reasons why, right? Yeah. But like, it's not, you have found, they've all found real problems. Right. And they've all come up with some kind of thing that would at least start to address the problem. Right. It's obviously better, worse. Right. A lot of this is opinion based, but like no one's ever come to us with a fundamentally bad grant proposal that like didn't even target a real problem or anything. Right. People don't write them idly, I guess, is my point. Yeah. Uh, A lot of times you do better working with individual donors. Yes. In fact, that is the best. We, a lot of the reality here is that that's the best grants from foundations is not the majority of funding not even close and also it can be very expensive it takes forever to get and then the requirements to maintain the grant can be quite strenuous sometimes so I was asking about um, uh, uh, being a State Department alum I briefly forgot you were in the you worked at the State Department I, I was I was a foreign <laughs> service officer a US diplomat um, and it very humorous too i'll go back to serendipity after i came back from the fulbright i was living back in nashville tennessee and i decided that i wanted to pursue a more international lifestyle so i look at, i started looking at jobs in dc and i somehow ended up taking the foreign service exam and i got in i got in uh, in the days when less than two percent of the diplomats were women and i moved to washington and i was an economic officer with a specialty of petroleum i spoke french much better in those days and i was trained uh in petroleum of course so i went to west africa how do you say petroleum in french I don't even remember now. And besides, this my is just like petroleum. Yeah. You just say it I with a petrol, with an attitude. But um, but Le- I went to Liberia. I went to Liberia, which is English. Liberia, my first, first posting, and uh, in Monrovia. An internal, yeah, in Monrovia. Wow, what was that like? And an, an internal civil war broke out, and so that'll happen. That'll happen much, there. <laughs> much of my uh, State Department career was 
doing reporting on internal military uh, uh, battles, coups, interventions. I placed an Atlas Corps fellow for, who was from Monrovia, and her like her great grandparents, I guess, had been freed American slaves yeah. who took a, up the opportunity to go to go there when it was. Uh, first said that's the, my understanding of the history of Liberia is it was originally it's called Liberia means free, uh, and it was where I think there was probably some philanthropic funding involved to like return. It was the actually slaves. the president. Um, Monrovia was named after President James Monroe, and the plan was to send the freed slaves over to West Africa, specifically to Liberia and Monrovia. I was not aware that it actually worked. It ultimately didn't for many, many reasons, as all of us listening can figure out why. Um, maybe they did get one or two ships over there, but overall it was a I think it became, plan. It, it also got into the like, it, yeah, the plan never really, I'm remembering now, but it got into the like, it became a romantic notion amongst freed slaves who didn't necessarily know that they, again, very few of them were actually from Liberia or had been they, they, and most of them from did there. not want to leave their homes and their families where they were. So yeah. it was not it was not a popular plan. And then when they looked at it, they also realized that what would the freed slaves do over there? You know, you needed to have it was programming a, in place. One of the first of very of many poorly planned American led interventions in that continent. Exactly. We, which we continue. We're honestly continuing to do. <laughs> the uh something we've talked about on the podcast a lot is the play pumps you ever heard of do you remember play pumps not. with it was nancy reagan and some prominent philanthropists and they set up merry-go-rounds in some african villages and the merry-go-rounds also like pumped water right but because they pumped water they were a little bit more difficult to turn than like most merry-go-rounds also no one knew what a merry-go-round was there Right. So basically the way I got explained to them was like, it's for the kids. Right. And so they thought they're like, they basically set up child labor programs. Right. With like, and there's images of like young children, like being overworked, pushing these merry-go-rounds around so the village could have water. Um, and again, it was like a Nancy Reagan led thing and it was generally a disaster. I, my last trip, I try to go to Africa as much as I can. I'm a huge fan of Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think my last trip was just before COVID in 2019. Mm. And I was over around Tanzania. And they had just had a program, which had not been done by Americans, but some nonprofits, they may have been American-based, had donated all these camels to the Tanzanian farmers and the Masamara. Uh, um, and... One, the camels really couldn't survive in that climate. They were not indigenous yeah. to there. And second, it just made the Maasai and the other Tanzanian farmers all have to figure out how do they feed all these new mouths of the camels, which they'll die. So it was a really big problem. And then the camels started having camel babies. And yes, it, that's the it was too. I mean, it was very sad. There was also I heard a story once that there was a bar, it was a barber training program or something. They were going to give everyone barber skills, but literally everyone in that community shaves their heads. <laughs> it's like ritual head shaving they do like every like as a community <laughs> there are these are and i think the, the 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 very simple thing that any one of these folks could have done is have more community involvement from the start um <laughs> it would have really avoided uh, a lot of embarrassment and in some cases hardship um so uh, talk, uh there is a lot of overlap in, between diplomacy and philanthropy Sometimes great fundraisers become diplomats. Sometimes great diplomats 
go on to be great fundraisers at, at the end of their career. Um, Hillary Clinton, great fundraiser, great diplomat. Um, lots of folks around D.C., right? And oftentimes that's how you get your ambassador appointment, right? Exactly. What, why, why do you suppose that is? What's, what are, are they similar skill sets? Absolutely. A diplomacy and fundraising and diplomacy and running a nonprofit are, I would say, almost exactly the same skills. Basically, both people, whether you're a diplomat or a nonprofit professional, you're always trying to draw people and resources into whatever your initiative or current project is. You have a different focus, maybe, in a different mission. Obviously, the U.S. government, diplomat, you have a mission to support U.S. interests. Nonprofit, you support your community needs. But but still, at the end of the day, it's the same. Drawing in people and resources, charisma, yeah. and persuasive skills. Fundamentally, I ask people for things, and I thank people for things. Same thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every day I wake up, and all day long, I ask people for things, and I thank people for things. Right? In that order. I don't... Yeah. Sometimes, in order to, before I ask you again, I thank you for the last thing that you did. <laughs> thank you again for coming on my podcast. When I ask you, so I'm going to ask you something eventually. Thank you again for coming on my podcast. That was a lot Absolutely. of fun. Absolutely, and then the next next day, ask comes. <laughs> It'd be great if you could evaluate proposals with us this spring. That's certainly something I'm going to be asking you to do. I know the, it's coming. Um, we've got a, we've got a few months left. Uh, but uh, so when we talk about the, the the work of being a nonprofit. Professional, you know what you're talking about. You, uh, after your stint in diplomacy, and thank you for your service. We always thank soldiers for their service, but not necessarily nurses or diplomats or teachers, right? But you don't always know a diplomat <laughs> when you see one. A soldier, you see their uniform. I think I saw it on your LinkedIn. And oh, yes. uh, anyway, you could, uh, you could have not gone to Liberia, I suppose. <laughs> done, something more done something more comfortable with your time anyway thank you for for serving your country in that way uh, and i'm sure you were a good one and i'm sure you were also a very good executive director which you did for 22 years at three different organizations talked and it's actually something that so as the founder of a nonprofit, i guess executive director is one of the many jobs that i do over here including podcast host uh if if i were in a position to hire away some of my job responsibilities. This is the first one I would not, well, I would be, I would hire an executive director so I didn't have to do those things. I never wanted to be one. My whole career I was working at nonprofits in fundraising roles and other roles, right? Supporting the executive director. But you've, you've decided to, you decided to do it again and again and again. <laughs> Why? What is it, what is it um, about it that you enjoy? Uh, asking, you ask for things, thank them for things. It's very much like being a t diplomat or, again, a lot like doing theater, really. An executive director of a small to mid-sized nonprofit, for sure, is the ship's captain, as well as you're the chef and the bottle washer if no one else is around, so you do everything. I love the thrill and the excitement of, I, as you see from my background and my LinkedIn profile, two of my three executive director roles, I followed founders. And I love that. I love that with a passion because I'm coming after someone who has had great passion, great energy, and my strength is coming in, looking around, uh, creating structure, finding funders, and getting the organization to the next level. So I really get a great thrill out of that. My first executive director role was with Physician Assistant Foundation, and there... I, at that time, this was in the early 2000s, 
Physician assistants was a career choice in the United States, but had not yet gone international. I had many physician assistants that were donors and members who wanted to do something international. So I was able to start a grant program. And then we began sending physicians assistants out to do great work in countries, a lot of the developing world, that really needed help. Uh, also at Physician Assistant Foundation, there was not really a culture of individual giving. Mm -hmm. the, the physician assistant who would give uh, to the physicians other than physician assistants? Would give. That was not a problem. Pharmaceuticals were good at giving. but to Not build the drugs themselves, people who worked in the pharmaceutical industry. No, the pharmaceutical companies okay. would give. Corporate gifts you know, from Merck and Pfizer. And, got, Think got about it. it. Good business yes. sense there. Um, but individuals, physician assistants would have been one group of people that didn't necessarily have a culture of giving instilled with the them. Doctors are... are are very, we talk to a lot of health organizations, and it is a challenge, and it's the number one recipient of funding is health. Right. Particularly now in a pandemic, but it was true before the pandemic. But doctors themselves are very, they believe right. their work is exactly. benefits mankind, and so they keep their money. So there I worked really hard. I started a three-year uh giving campaign to draw physicians in, physician assistants in to start them giving. And it, it took off. I mean, after they gave for three years, they started giving because of peer pressure, et cetera. Then they're sort of into the system and they kind yes. of, it becomes habit, which was yes. good. Well, I would imagine that they would, the key there would have been to convince them. I'm just thinking, I'm imagining your grant proposal and starting to give you feedback. <laughs> it's just what I do automatically, right? But I'm just thinking that, and you, obviously you don't work there anymore. But I would think that you'd want to convince them, show them how it could benefit their career, right? Like exactly. the field of being a physician. We also, quite honestly, did a lot of things which would be appropriate as far as donor recognition and peer engagement. If all of your peers are giving, you want to give to Yes, them. yes. Very good. This is all then very good advice for yeah. folks. The then at Computer Core, when I came in, there we were only serving 48 students a year in one site. So there the goal was to build out. Well, there, while I had some technology, technology experience from my Fulbright days, I had to learn a lot about tech skills, servers, how to carry on a conversation with an engineer. All of that was something I, as an executive director, had to do in order to ultimately, we had 17 sites across the Northern Virginia area, all with its own servers and things. Um, and there also, I did a big focus on earned income. And even, so you're, you're talking about the work you did in fundraising, but like in your, and you, you succeeded there, but you also had to like, make sure you were like, you had your registration forms in, right? Absolutely. And that like payroll was you being You have to be met. legal and compliant. Right. And there's an awful lot of compliance. And in fact, as of 2018, there's an awful lot more compliance than most nonprofits. And, and as far as I can tell, full compliance is not technically possible. I believe the, the law says I'm supposed to be registered anywhere you can see my donate button, but not every state yeah. even offers Correct. the form seven I'm required to have. Seven states do not. Uh, yeah, seven states do not. And that's the kind of thing that like I would really, so I hope to hire an executive director that can be like, because I want to be, we're giving advice to other nonprofits, so I really want to make sure our registrations are all correct, right? And that we're doing everything right ourselves, and I'd love someone who's as detail-oriented as I to take some of that off my plate. You've mentioned that you took over for some founders, right? I exactly. do. I can already see how that's going to be difficult. I set this up myself. Unfunded list would not exist if it weren't for me. There would be no one reading these grant proposals. 
<laughs> right? So I but do you, have some reason yeah. to think that I do know how to set it up. Yeah, right. you've you've done very very well. I mean, you already you're almost there, ready to hand it over because you do have structure. For want of the. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got the. Ironically, we don't have a lot of grant success. We're working yeah. on it. We've been focused on the program and all that, and right. I and I have and I you know have the time uh, to be diligent and deliberate on it. Uh, but like, what advice when I'm in the position? Let's assume flash forward to the point where I'm in a position, right? Or Mackenzie Scott calls me up out of the blue, right? The um, uh, what should I? What are some tips for me? For bringing um, in for most of the people already mentioned again make document 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 make sure that you have everything written down as much as possible make sure you have a strong board in place when you leave uh I, and well then, i don't think i would ever leave is the thing ah uh, yes did these founders then, leave and then you the and then you took department. over everything i i strongly believe that the best thing that could happen is a founder to have trust and faith and step away at least for a few years, if not longer. I think that personally, having followed two founders, that um, organizations need to change to get to the next level. And that usually cannot happen with a founder. Now, that being said, I was at Computer Court 11 years. It was very heartbreaking for me to leave after 11 years, but it was very important that I leave with a clean break. No, I can't come back and volunteer. No, I can't do grant writing because the organization needed to go to that third level, founder, then me, then another. So, so yeah, I think it's important to, it's like letting your child leave, leave to go to college. Or move out. Hmm. The uh, certainly, I would. Love, I mean, I'm just. Uh, I would. I imagine it's a common thing for founders to say. Uh, it does not sound realistic. The uh, given my like knowledge of what my day to day is. Again, I I'm doing ten people's work. The executive director's one. So if I were to leave, wh who's going to do those other nine jobs? <laughs> well, that's where before you leave, you need to make sure there's there's. That Mackenzie Scott has called. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not. So that, I think the real tip you're saying for me is this, this isn't just about raising up money to hire an executive director to take these things over. I need to raise enough money to to bring in a whole team, or to have a structure in place. The new person could come in and figure out what should the team look like. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, very good. There are many examples in the history of nonprofits of founder-led organizations where founders led them until they physically no longer could lead them. Exactly. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I think for me, that's probably what's going to happen. I don't see what else I would do. Uh, I have built, I focused my skill set on a like very specific thing uh, that wouldn't really like, I don't know how I would adapt it uh, elsewhere. The, um, the other role that you mentioned when we were going back and forth about the interview uh is the role of an interim executive director many times there's a lot of turnover in nonprofits. um executive directors get burned out they get other job offers they're underpaid and they get pretty easy to get lured away somewhere else sometimes people who work in the nonprofit sector realize that you can purchase things with money and they go work in sales or become real estate agents i've noticed a lot of them become and they seem that seems to be a similar skill set. <laughs> uh, if you're a good fundraiser for nonprofits, you're probably going to sell. You're probably going to move houses. 
Um, you uh, you were telling me that you want to be an interim executive director for the remainder of your career. Um, it's an interesting choice. Uh, what's it, what's the difference between an interim executive director and an executive director? Okay, so I'm a big believer in it. When I uh, came to Computer Core and to Docs of Progress, I followed interims both cases, and I insisted at Computer Core they hire an interim after I left. An interim is someone who comes in and does an assessment and makes sure all is smooth and stable during the transition. It tends to be folks who have done a fair amount of work as an executive director before at different sorts of organizations. And at that point, it's folks who want to do sprints, not marathons. You come in and you work really hard for X number of time, and then you're on to look for your next interim job. How long are we we talking about? uh, varies greatly. Best practice would be six to ten months, typically. Some could be as short as three. That's very unusual. Some could go nearly as long as two years. Um, that's kind of unusual as well. But it varies greatly depending upon the organization's I mean, needs pretty, and also when they're ready to hire again. It's pretty unusual for any nonprofit employee to stay in their job for longer than two years. Exactly. So it's rare, but I can think of some interims who've ended up staying for almost two years, just the way things worked out for whatever reason. So Briefly before Unfunded List, I did some uh, 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 satirical work through the foundation. And one of our jokes is that I was the temporary indefinite executive director at um, at the Monster Family Foundation. I mean, if you're the executive director, you have the same roles and responsibilities and everything, right? Why is it important much. to clarify that you're just there in the interim? In fact, well, the like, many executive is, directors are only going to be there for as long as you've mentioned anyway in yeah, reality. Exactly. So, I mean, one of your roles is to assess the organization and help the board and the staff and the donors and other constituents look at and understand if any change is needed and also to create a stable and smooth environment because transition on change is scary. So getting a new executive can be very, uh, very, very stressful, certainly on boards and on staff. Um, yes. Um, as I, I, in my experience as a nonprofit employee, a new executive director means that I'll be working somewhere else soon. <laughs> Exactly. So the, the interim's <laughs> role is to keep things as stable as possible. Yeah, I'm generally not the kind of person who stays around after the someone new comes in at the top. They you they want to change things up, and I and I and it usually doesn't usually not it just uh, that my personal experience. Uh, but it is uh, as I've noted a couple times. There's a huge retention problem in nonprofits. Right. We, and of course, there's a great retention problem everywhere now with the great resignation. So, well, I find that very interesting. The nonprofit sector has not has not seen that in as great numbers as some other fields. I do think lack of meaning is a big part of why a lot of people are leaving their jobs and not part of why it is not a concern. Most people it's why they stay in a job that is underpaid, doesn't have enough benefits and stuff because the meaning is great. For it's Atlas Core, for instance, the benefits package and salary were not in any way part of why I was working there. I often forgot. I was like, like when the paychecks were coming, I was like, oh yes, I get paid, sort of. <laughs> Still a lot more than the stipend the fellows received, but the um, not any uh, well less than half of the average salary for people working on the block. K- I was on K Street in Washington, D.C. 
Yeah. The uh, um, what, uh, what do you think about that? Like, well, uh, how can we run a nonprofit if everybody's leaving their jobs every eighteen months? It's, it's not, not a problem for me. Uh, I don't have anybody, but <laughs> it, it's not all of the positions. It's certainly within the fundraising uh, realm, and it's been that way for a long time because that's one of those jobs. You know, there's been things written about it by various foundations. Even the whole. Uh, structure of setting up a nonprofit and having a development department and having development directors. Can they really do what they need to do in the amount of time they're given? Do they have the resources to do it? Is too much expected? You know, that's been debated there. Overall, you hit the nail on the head. The, the thing that will keep people with nonprofits tends to be the working environment and the culture. Can you set up the culture so people want to come to work, people enjoy it, and nonprofits have the capacity typically to have sort of uh, unique benefits or different benefits. At Atlas Core, you probably got to meet a lot of fabulous young people and international people. Uh, yes. They may be able to do something like give more time off they may be able to <laughs> no, no offense, no. The um, uh, the main way they were able to pay me is that I got to meet those fellows. And in fact, I still know yeah. those fellows. So the money I spent it long ago, or simply misplaced it. It was that little. It's in the couch somewhere. Um, but I, those fellows all still exist. They all got to have great yeah. experiences. A lot of them connect me because I was a very visible part of their. A lot of them think I'm like the whole reason why they got the thing because I'm the only one they were like talking. <laughs> You know, uh, but really there were there were a lot of other folks filling out visa paperwork and doing other things of that sort that that, that helped me along the way. But but again, that was the main reason that I was doing it there. Uh, and ultimately, it was not enough um, uh, to keep me there. I never really wanted to like found my own nonprofit. I used to say the same thing that you were just saying. Like there were too many founded. I did find ours in before. Um, there was a recent spike in new ones being founded, and I was a little bit predated that. So as usual, I'm a trend starter. No one in D.C. had beards when I first moved here. I'll just, <laughs> it's just what I'll say. It's just what I'll say. Everybody was wearing ties, too. But that one was Obama. Obama one day, like, didn't forgot to put his tie on. And then it was okay to not wear. Then it was okay to not wear a tie anymore. Because <laughs> uh, Bush, when I moved to D.C., Bush was president. He wore a tie every single day of his presidency. And I'm sure he's wherever he is now on his ranch, probably wearing a tie. <laughs> Painting, I guess. That's what he does. Um, all right. Uh, I have a few more questions I want to ask you. This has been okay. uh, very informative. We may have to consider having you back or uh, have you do a panel with us or something. We are increasingly okay. doing the kinds of panels that are very similar to those certificate for nonprofit management thing that you've set up. Uh, and I think maybe offline we can talk about that. We have, in fact, a um, unfunded fellow working with us this round. There are a lot of folks interested in getting education in the process of reading grant proposals uh and as and we have some needs of our program um and again one of the reasons why i don't think i could hire someone to replace me is it would be illegal for me to write down everything i write in a job description and ask somebody to do that (laughs) and you have that is what we have to do in order to run the program so like who's going to read 175 grant proposals (laughs) in two days and then thoughtfully assign them to 800 different about who you if i i can't right um but um uh when i have to do that it is very helpful to have evaluators like yourself who can read pretty much anything 
you've done stuff in the arts. You've done stuff right with video. You've done stuff with health. You have international experience, right? I think the question I wrote here is how do you balance your many passions? I don't know. Did you re? Does that? That doesn't sound like me. <laughs> you really, it's your question. I did not. I think I, I want I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it slightly. It was a one. Thank you for being. Usually, it's just like these people want to read global gender equality proposals. Okay. Right. These people want to read arts. Right. And I and it's it's and I'm thinking that way. It's great when folks can read from all different kinds. Right. But it but a lot of people are more issue focused uh, than you are. What's it like to have so many different interests? There's a lot going on in all these fields. Well, well, first of all, I mean, my skill really is nonprofit management. I mean, uh, that is it. Not necessarily healthcare. So you could go work on any issue. We could introduce a new issue into the mix. I know the legal things and the things that need to be done. And then I would argue that that translates over into my interests, which my primary interest, which you identified spot on in your questions, uh, global gender equality and the arts. So while my professional focus is nonprofit management, the two things that I engage in in almost all my free time when I'm not reading proposals for you, Dave, at Unfunded List is I'm board chair for an organization called Together Women Rise. We're, we're a giving circle that has more than 400 chapters across the country. And we have a traditional grants program where we give away $35,000 to $50,000 each month to a grantee uh, that's helping advance equality for women and girls in developing countries. Again, my passion there. Uh, We also are just launching a transformational partnership grants program, which is in line with some of the trends in in philanthropy. And then the other thing I love that I spend my time with is live theater. I'm involved um, on the the governance committee for Theater Washington, and then I do some things with Synetic and Washington Stage Guild. Oh, cool. And I do a huge amount of producing with the Little Theater of Alexandria. So, and again, it gets back to really philanthropy. Two of my favorite shows I produced were, and I don't know if you'll know them. You probably will because you're a theater person. Intimate Apparel by Lynn Nottage and then The Revolutionist by Lauren Gunderson. You know, again, they have great messages and it's a way to tell people about issues and concerns in the world and maybe get them engaged. Mm, Yes. I have a, a degree in theater arts. And one of the things that I and uh, that I wish they had taught me while I was paying them money to get this degree is that theater is like not a real business. <laughs> you can't really like you, there's like anyone making money in theater is an extreme outlier. The vast majority of theater is done by people who are not getting paid or compensated in any way and doing it for the love of it. Pretty, I did a financial analysis of professional theaters in DCO about six or seven years ago. I took the list from Theater Washington and all of the professional theaters, and I went through and looked at their 990s. And this was, again, from the big ones like Arena Theater, Arena Stage, and a huge number of small professional theaters that not, not everyone's heard of. Most of us have not. The average annual income was 194000 for each theater when you did it as an average again arena sta- stage including some very large some, some very large house, places those are all millions. the really big ones but when you added in the small oh ones, yeah i'm sure some average. of them have some of them their budgets i mean i was involved in the run of a show in town about um john calvin we got a small grant from like the union of presbyterian churches <laughs> um and i did i played a presbyterian and no, i played a i guess a catholic character it would have been because this was dirt they hadn't quite protested yet 
Okay. <laughs> uh, right. I played John Calvin's law school roommate, Francois Daniel. Uh, and in general, he was like, he didn't, uh, Calvin would like complain to me about the church and I like didn't care. It was my role was to show that like the average French person didn't really like, wasn't following it as closely, <laughs> which it was a fun thing for me because in my actual life, I was like usually the opposite following everything much more closely than the average person. Uh-huh. It was a fun part to play. And we did a long run of that because it was Calvin's 500th birthday. And so the Presbyterians really wanted everyone. Calvin's very important to them. They wanted this show to go to every single church. and We got to do a long run. Uh, and yeah, we got paid on occasion or whatever. But literally everyone involved in, the, in it had a, a full-time job somewhere else, right? Real estate agent, working at a nonprofit, doing something else like that, right? And the, the uh, theater sustained through the passion of the practitioners, uh, it exists in almost every community in the world uh, and not because it's inside the wheel of capitalism and meeting its bottom lines. Yeah. Uh, it long ago freed itself when uh, I forget whoever it was, the Thespis step, <laughs> first stepped out of the chorus, right? So we have a long tradition of freeing ourselves. Um, the, anyway, uh, thank you for all your work in theater. Uh, it is something that right, the arts music as well lots of musicians not getting paid properly even though literally everybody consumes music yeah. right but when it comes to paying artists for it it's like well, i don't know about that <laughs> yes i'm going to listen to music every single day <laughs> and i'll pay record companies and exec i'm happy to pay them right but i but not necessarily them one of my favorite groups that we review regularly is the Navoc foundation which supports women artists around the globe given your interest in global gender equity i imagine i've asked you to read that before I think you have. Uh, do I do, in general, while I've got you here, do I, in general, do a good job evaluating proposals to you? Well, that that's what I like. I mean, you're very receptive. Like I've told you before, like when I first started, I didn't like some of the ones. So then you gave me Did others. You? I get that feedback a lot. You told me that I, so you said you didn't like, I, I was giving you an outside your area and you gave me some feedback and I adjusted properly. Yeah, you adjusted it. And that's I also goal. like the fact that your timing's really good. You give a lot of heads up before the cycle starts. And it's a much longer reader reading period than I have with some other places I review. Yes, we go back and forth. We give a long period, which is interesting. And that can be good and bad because I know you have some reviewers, everybody waits till the last There's night. There's a dark period but- in the middle. Yeah. A lot of them do it right away in the beginning, first couple weeks. Right. And then there's two weeks where no one does anything. Okay. And, and then, then the, the second they, week, then yeah. a lot of people come in. And and no matter what we do, the very last day, in fact, the, it, usually we get more feedback after the deadline yeah. than before because so many people are waiting until the very end. Uh, and, you know, it, the we I do talk about Christmas morning evaluators, right? I'm not a... <laughs> I, uh, uh, Chris, uh, Christmas is very universal, even though <laughs> I myself am Jewish. I do know everything <laughs> about Christmas. <laughs> and the kids, when they when they see the, the presents under the tree, they just open them right away. They don't say, when is the deadline for opening these gifts? Right. And a lot of our evaluators enjoy reading these proposals so much that they get right to it the moment I assign it to them, which is a really neat. I didn't really expect that to be part of this program. And most folks, they're like giving grants that have volunteer reviewers. That's it's it's they're going to wait till the last minute. And it usually is pretty burdensome when I've had to do that. They don't necessarily give me I've been frustrated a few times where there were proposals in the batch that were like a perfect fit for me and my interests. But I got assigned other ones because that's what needed to be read. Right. And because they know I can read pretty much anything. Right. I tend to get the stuff that can't possibly be assigned to anybody else. <laughs> uh, 
I imagine that may have happened to you on some other committees and stuff. It has, it has, yeah. Sometimes I've had some real doozies. Uh-huh. Uh, speaking of some doozies, I'm going to end uh, with some big questions. Um, right, well, I'm going to combine two of these here because okay. we've been talking for a good long while. And I'm sure the folks are fascinated and listening, but they probably have to like make dinner or the drive home has probably ended by now and they're just sitting in the driveway waiting for the podcast to, to end. Right. Or they, or they long ago missed their stop. <laughs> right. Uh, so what's the in, in organized philanthropy? What's the most important thing happening? I think it's it's two things right now. Um, one is the obvious. COVID-19 has thrown everything up in the air. Everything. I mean, it's made folks realize maybe we ought to be doing more now and not waiting to give our money away. It made many foundations realize that they should stop funding unfunded list. (laughs) Yeah. And there's been a great deal of change in in what is being funded. (laughs) Exactly. So it's a big issue. And and, and That wasn't COVID so much. That was more several of our funders pivoted towards uh, diversity and inclusion. Exactly. That's another big one, too, That the, that's getting a lot of attention now. So that is interesting to watch that. On the positive side and is, though, and I mentioned it with Together Women Rise, this concept of transfer grant, transformational grants, partnerships, working more closely with grantees. So, Dave, this takes us back to, like, our conversations about Africa and the merry-go-round pumps and the camels in Tanzania. You know, talk to your grantees first. Don't form a structured grant program that they have to somehow stuff their organization and program into, but the, let, let them express their needs, be flexible, and work with them together so you can achieve what the community mm-hmm. needs. And I think that's getting more traction than I've seen it get in my many years in the field. We have had false starts before that have failed, I will admit. It's a, cha- it's, think- it's a new field overall. It's uh, yeah. arguably under 100 years old, organized philanthropy. So I'm very excited by this, and I'm hoping um, it, it continues to evolve so that we do more good for those who need it. Thank you very much, Lynn. Thank you for evaluating all the proposals with us, and thank you for coming on a very lengthy podcast and talking about philanthropy with me for a long time. Thank you, Dave. It was a great experience. Uh, and uh, best of luck with all your, uh, your grant-making, and I will be assigning you some, pro- some proposals in just a couple months. I had no doubt. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you very much.